Hello, and welcome to This Week in Hearing. We are your guest hosts, Laura Sinnott and Heather Meliak. And today we're very happy to introduce our guest, Michael Lawrence. Michael, he is kind of like an audio renaissance man is how I think of him. He is an audio engineer. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I really do. Um, He is an audio engineer, most specifically a systems engineer, which he'll tell you a little bit about. He works for Rational Acoustics. Uh, Rational Acoustics is a company that makes acoustic tools and measurement software for professional audio. And he focuses on their smart um, SPL, their SPL feature set for the software called Smart with two A's. And he also is a podcast host for the Signal to Noise podcast. He's an editor at Live Sound International Publication, which I think, I don't know, it, it like hits all around the world and tens of thousands of people read it. Um, he does research on sound level monitoring, on live sound level monitoring. He has co-authored articles for the Audio Engineering Society. He's involved in the National Hearing Conservation Association and recently won the prized Safe and Sound Award with Jamie Anderson and I think the Rational Acoustics team. Is that correct, Michael? Um, yes. Okay. So not just you, but there's a team. He's also a mentor. And a week or two ago, really. Oh my God, you got book. one. Oh Heather's my God. got one on the way too. Yep, oh mine's God. on its way. I haven't read it because I just got it yesterday and I'll need an autograph next time I see you. Oh, that is so sweet. Thank you. I, I do too much stuff. I was like totally zoning out when you were reading. <laughs> like, wow, I was like, this is so boring. Well, I'm not done. I'm not <laughs> oh, done. <God. laughs> because I was going to say, what I think is the most important accolade isn't like a, it's not a title, but you are making and have been making efforts towards a culture shift of, of letting go of needing concert sound to be painfully loud, harmfully loud without sacrificing quality. So that's something, you know, it's hard to just describe what you're, what that is, but it is, it is important and it's going to have reverberations on really ultimately the world and people won't be hurting their their ears as much when they go to concerts. So it's kind of hard to explain, you know, what all that you do, but that's that was my attempt. I think you did a great job. Probably better than I could have done it. I was very impressed. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you. And on top of all that, he tours, which I think right. we're about to say it's your day off and you're spending it your next hour here with us oh i've been looking forward to this for weeks so i'm really happy to be here yes um so it is your day off and can you tell us who you're touring with where you are what you're doing sure Uh, yeah right now i'm touring with a uh, swedish metal band called ghost um which i'm actually i ended up being a big fan of them i did i've done one tour with them previously um and the support acts are mastodon and a band called Spirit Box that, that's new to me on this run. Um, and it's, it's a U.S. runner doing arenas. Um, and uh, we've got, uh, I think, seven more shows coming up next week. Or, or we're going to be out in like Chicago and kind of Green Bay area. And then and I fly home and then I fly to California. I have a one-off with uh, R&B singer Miguel. And then after that, I'm going to sleep for like a month. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and are you, what are you doing there? Are you doing system engineering? Uh, yeah, I'm the systems engineer for, for ghost. Yeah. So basically, uh, I, I don't expect anyone who doesn't do that for a living to know what it means. Uh, basically my job is to 
design and deploy the sound system every day in a way that achieves uh, we, we try to achieve as much uniformity as possible. So, you know, this is an artist who cares about everybody getting a quality show, regardless of whether they're in the front row or the back row or way up on the side. And we try to do it in a way that that allows everybody to have a similar sounding experience at a similar level. So that kind of plays into a lot of what I know you want to talk about today. But yeah, so that's that's my job as, as a systems engineer is to basically wrangle the PA system every day. Which is pretty impressive because I used to think the front of house engineer had a you know an intense job of make, making the sound good for tens of thousands of people, but you actually need to make sure that that mix is reached to everybody, and that is just, it's no small feat. Yeah, we call it. We have a phrase: the uh, waveform delivery service, right? So you've got a mix engineer who's going to stand there and make the best creative decisions they can based on what they're hearing, um, but they don't know what's happening. You know, if you're in an arena, there's ten thousand seats. They don't know what's happening in the other. 9,999 seats. And that's my job is to make sure that what they're doing, where they're hearing it is, is translating to everywhere else in the venue. And you're using, I mean, you're relying on your own ears and obviously a lot of software and hardware. Is that right? Yeah, obviously your ears are, you know, are the, are your, your prime shareholder. And obviously one of the only things that you have available to you once the show starts, I can't be moving measurement microphones around in the audience when there's, you know, when it's full of people, but yeah, we use, uh, we use, uh, prediction software that every morning I'll model the I'll model the uh, the venue in software and put our sound system virtually in that model and see how it's going to behave and I can adjust the aim and adjust the level and adjust the tonality until I'm happy with it and then I give that information to the audio crew and we put the PA up in that way and then once it's up I use more software like you, know, you mentioned Smart uh, to take measurements of the response of the system and make sure that it's consistent and then. Uh, you know, we can adjust the different speakers and different levels and timings and do what we need to do to, to achieve as much consistency as we can. Cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of tools. A, a lot, lot of tools. tools. And yeah. I just like pointing out that audiologists who are listening, because it is mainly an audiologist um, audience, audiologists specialize in all different kinds of things from pediatrics to cochlear implants, even interoperative monitoring and audio engineers are similar. I'm an audio engineer, but I honestly didn't even really know what a systems engineer did either until recently. Um, so I just, uh, yeah, it's a great example of how refined you can get within your, your area of expertise. It, it yeah. really has become more refined too. I mean, the, the thing is audio, audio live sound is a very young field, very, very young field. We've only been doing it for a couple of decades, seriously. Right. Um, by the way, there's a, there's a, a wood chipper going on outside my house. I told them I was going to be recording this morning. So if they could please make as much noise as possible. Uh, so they, <laughs> I don't hear it. Okay, good. Cause they, they're, it's getting wild. <laughs> That's what I there. told the weed uh, whacker outside. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole job. Somebody's whole job is to coordinate different uh, RF frequency, radio frequencies for the in-ears and the wireless mics and all that stuff. And you got to do that every, every, so there's all these jobs that just didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. And that's, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it, but that's a lot of what we're trying to do with our, our podcast community and our mentorship programs is just get people exposed to these ideas. And yeah. we've had a lot of people say, Hey, I didn't know what a systems engineer was until I heard you talk about it. And then we've got a bunch of young people now saying, I think I want to do that. That's cool. Um, so that's, you know, part half the battle here is just saying, hey, this is a thing that you can do. And it's a job that somebody needs to do. And it's something that you can get good at and make a living at. Right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Before we dive in um, to some of the questions we had prepped, I just there are a lot of audiologists listening. And I think Laura and I take for granted that we work in the music industry and we we understand kind of what the lifestyle is like. I, I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview of what a day is like for you. How, how many hours of sleep you get, how mm. fatiguing it is and how I know a lot uh, backstage can be hurry up and wait, 
sometimes. I, I don't think that's the case for a job like yours necessarily. Um, but just give people an idea of how you live and how exhausting it really is to be on a tour. Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of my work isn't touring, but that's, that's what mm-hmm. I'm doing, you know, right now. And so, yeah, yeah. so uh, it, it depends a little bit on the show right now or in arenas. So typically 6.30 or 7 a.m. we do what's called walk and chalk. So the, the heads of department and the rigger will go in and we basically need to hang our whole show from the roof. All the speakers, all the lights, all the video stuff has to hang off the steel. Every building has a little bit different steel structure and the way the, uh, the, the weight, weight has to be distributed and where the beams are. And so we basically go in and chalk the floor. Here's where we need our, our points to be. And then what do we need to do with the ceiling to get, you know, get these loads suspended there. So that's how we start off with doing a bunch of <laughs> doing a bunch of that at 630 at seven in the morning. I'm using my, my laser measurement to, to make a model of the venue around the same time. Um, trucks start dumping. We've got, I think, seven trucks on this tour. And some of these venues have four loading docks. Some of them you can only get one truck in at a time. So sometimes you're just sitting there waiting for your truck to come up and get your stuff. Um once you get the riggers are done with your points, once your stuff's in the room, then we can say start hanging the PA. It takes uh, should be about an hour to fly uh, to fly an arena size PA. We've got some very good PA techs on this tour. They're doing a great job, um, and I'm super bad at, at uh, being a fly tech, but I try to I try to help where I can without being too in the way. Um, and so usually by eleven thirty or, or noon, we've got the PA up in the air. Um, if I can, I can start tuning it at that point. But sometimes there's still set carts and stuff in the way on on the arena floor, so I can't get. My microphone's where I need to get them. Sometimes I'm not able to run my uh, snake cables out the front of house. We can't turn power on us front. So like you said, a lot of waiting for other departments to do what Mm -hmm. they need to do and trying to stay out of their way. And um, typically afternoon is uh, line checks, sound checks, making sure everything's working properly. The lighting is doing their programming. You know, the video is doing their programming. Um, Audio team is making sure everything's functioning the way it's supposed to. Um, When you're on a tour, Bands don't often sound check every day. It depends on the act. But uh, once you do five or six shows, um, we have this great thing called virtual sound check, where every night we record the show to a computer. We record every microphone input separately to a computer. Um, and we're able to play that back through the console the next morning. So we can actually do a sound check as if the band were on stage, adjust the levels of the different microphones and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of my job is providing consistency. So if we're doing that right, the band shouldn't feel like they need to come in and sound check every day. Um, because we're we're making it you know consistent for them, and then you know five thirty or six you've got doors. Uh, our show starts at seven and goes till eleven, and then we are audio departments out by about one. Um, lighting takes a little longer; they have more stuff than we do, um, and they're not as cool. I'm just joking. Uh, and so <laughs> they're they're out by like usually two thirty or so. So you're gonna you know get back on the bus at at two or two thirty, and you're gonna probably drive four hours overnight, and you start doing it again at 6 30 so it's a 20 hour day and i was laughing because you said about not sound checking and all music audiologists know the worst thing is well the band will see you at sound check and you show up Mm -hmm. and they say they decided not to sound check today (laughs) everyone's out golfing or whatever yeah yeah (laughs) and and that's one of the other things is you try to you try to structure it so that you you provide providing these little pockets of hey you don't need to be here right now go take 20 minutes of you know sleep on the bus or whatever like because you can't operate on four hours of sleep safely right for any period of time um, it may be once or twice, but you can't do it for, for six weeks. And so it becomes about learning. Well, during from three to five, if, if I have no problems in my world, everything's good. That's when I'm going to go take a nap. And so people start peeling off and, and doing what they need to do. But, you know, it can take a, a week or two to settle into that uh, and build the routines. So, yeah, it's um, it's a very uh, 
demanding lifestyle in terms of your well-being uh, it's definitely not for everybody i don't even honestly think it's for me i don't particularly love touring <laughs> compared to the other stuff that i do uh, i do about thirty thousand steps a day in an arena so you're, you're being really physically active in addition to not uh getting a ton of sleep so yeah it's definitely um it's definitely a challenging lifestyle in many ways well so on on the topic of concert sound i've heard you say before michael that this idea that people should have earplugs should or need to bring earplugs to concerts. There's something kind of wrong with that idea. I believe you, I've heard you say that. And I, I actually saw my nurse practitioner yesterday and she had an Ellen John t-shirt on. And so we talked about it. She said, Oh yeah, I saw Ellen John yesterday. It was an amazing show. And I told her I was an audiologist and she was, she said, and I was so dumb. I can't believe it. I forgot to wear my earplugs. And obviously it was so loud. And it just made me think about this idea that yeah, people kind of know and they expect concerts to be so loud that they should bring earplugs. Why, why are concerts so loud? Yeah, you know, and that's a question that people weren't asking 10 or 15 years ago. I think we as an, as a, as a, as an industry, the live sound industry, we've done a really lousy job of creating a situation where the default expectation is that you're going to be endangered or uncomfortable. Um, people don't show up with, with hard hats because they think the rigging might fall. Right. So it's the and they don't show up with, you know, like all this electrical gear because they think that the pyro or the or the or the electrical might be. It, it's it's just it's a really interesting thing where we're the one department where people seem to accept as a fact that it's going to be unsafe or uncomfortable. Um, and, and, and that's not great. You know, I'm not I'm not proud of that. There are some technical reasons. There are some historical reasons. I think I think part of it, if you look at the history of what we're doing and again, Beatles at Shea Stadium. You know, that wasn't even a real stadium. They're singing through the, the PA that they used to announce the batters, right? So that's not even a real concert at that point. So everything we're talking about has happened in in 40 years or 50 years. It's been very, very quick. Um, and so, you know, if you roll back the clock a bit, we're stacking PA up on the stage, on the corner of the stage. And if you need to go farther, you need to stack more of it. And if you need to go to the back and have it be a reasonable level in the back, you have to turn it up higher. So the people in the front are just getting absolutely steamrolled. Um, in 2022, we fly our PAs they are they're hung from the roof. And so you don't have a speaker six inches from your face and we have some incredible technology. You know, we have linear technology and we have delays and we have fills and we have all these things and you can really achieve a system that doesn't need to be 20 dB louder in the front of the room. I mean, our target for this tour is plus or minus three dB. So from mixed position down to the front, it goes up by three. And then from mixed position to the back row, the arena goes down by three. And in most days we hit that, right? So, so we no longer have a situation where it has to be brutal in the front row to get to the back. We now have modern technology that we don't have to do that. Um, that doesn't mean it's always possible to do that. There are, of course, times when you have to ground stack or you have to, you know, uh, use less PA than you wanted to. And, and these things do happen. But the point is, technologically, now it's possible to eliminate that as a reason for doing it. Um, the other major factor here is is how engineers think and how they approach a mix. You know, there are things that happen when you push a PA to its limits uh, that a lot of people like. They like the sound of that little distortion that comes in when when the systems is is approaching its its linearity limits. There, they like the sound of the multi, sort of like a multi band compression. It's like a like if you look at a mastering chain, right? So you have got your your exciters and your saturators and your multi band compressions and that's very similar to what a PA is doing when it's, when it's working too hard. Um, the problem is, you know, again, roll back the clock, the PA would hit, hit limit at right around concert level because the technology just wasn't, wasn't 
where it is today. And so you would push your mix until you got into that sweet spot when it sounded different and you go, yeah, that's where I want to be. And that became part of the sound of the show. Mm-hmm. Like, like an overdriven guitar amp is part of the sound of how a guitar sounds. Right. And if you don't turn the guitar amp loud enough, it doesn't, doesn't sound right. And so the PA for a while was the same thing. Uh, but again, in 2022, we have very, very, very powerful, very capable systems um, that can achieve show level without being in limit um, and have headroom and can reproduce those peaks cleanly. And so there's a reason that they have this much power is because we, we don't want to alter the waveform. It doesn't need, it's like, you're, you know, just cause you can't drive uh, faster than 70 here in New York. It doesn't mean that if your car only goes 70, that's going to be a safe situation. You need it to have a little more power under the hood to behave the way that we need it to. And it's kind of the same thing with a modern PA, but what that means is you can no longer walk up to this thing and say, I'm going to push it until I hear it go nonlinear. And that's where I'm going to sit because now that now that's 108 dBA. It's just, you know, they're insanely powerful systems nowadays. So a lot of what we've been trying to do at Rational Acoustics is kind of offer a new way of thinking that says, hey, we know you like the sound of this. We're not going to tell you how your show should sound, but don't rely on the PA going nonlinear to create this stuff because that stuff happens at just crazy, crazy levels now. Do that in the console. There, there's, you can get that saturation in the console. You can get that multiband compression in the console. Have your show sound the way you like it when it leaves the console. And then the PA will just reproduce that, which is the PA's job is just transmit that signal. You know, we don't, we don't choose cables that, that have distortion. We don't choose amplifiers that have distortion. You know, everything's linear nowadays. It really is. And that's, um, that's where it's been trending. So it's kind of the same reason that people like vinyl or like tape. You know, it, it, there are certain distortions, I'm sure both of you know better than I do, that are pleasing to the ear and that affect our loudness perception in positive ways. And so these are real tools that are really helpful for mix engineers. We're just saying we have to stop thinking of the PA as contributing that stuff because as the technology has matured and gotten better, the PA now contributes that stuff at levels that are just total insanity for us. And, you know, you're going to be driving audience out of the room before a modern arena system goes into limit probably. So So it almost sounds like, like you said, it's a mindset of the engineer that they're perhaps not even aware that they can achieve that sound without, like you said, having to steamroll people or having to, to produce such high output levels. Um, and, and so from what I understand, you're actually trying to teach engineers how to mix in this way, right? Like to still achieve the sound that people want, but not at 108 dBA. Um, and, and is this, is this what, what you've called in the past mindful mixing? Is that what that's about? The, 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 so we do a workshop on this, the rational acoustics and the real, the real name is pretty boring. It's something like uh, SPL applications for front of house engineers, but uh We've it, it's become known as the how to beat the meter class, and right, that, right. that has a lot of more more curb appeal, I guess. Um, but 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 really, what it is is talking about what is loud, what is what is impact, um, because SPL is not loudness, right? I actually have a shirt that says um, loudness isn't level, and uh, it's and I, and I wear that I sometimes, that. right? Because because the thing is, um, you know, just using using raw SPL as a way to achieve impact, um, it, it's it's a it's a blunt force tool. And it, and it doesn't work past a point, you know, people get tired and you have to go more and then you keep chasing itself. So, so let's understand what, what makes things sound loud. When we say this loud, what do we mean? You know, because you might be totally comfortable at the concert that's hundred dBA and you might go to church on a Sunday morning and it might be 83 dBA and then you might say oh, the church was too loud today. So, so we're not talking about what the SPL was when you said that, what does that mean? What, when you say it's, it's loud or it's too loud or it's not loud enough, what, what's going on there? you know, from a perceptual standpoint that makes us feel that way. Let's understand that. 
Um, let's understand what what creates impact other than crazy amounts of SPL. And SPL is an ingredient in that in that formula. But there are a lot of other ones that that haven't really been talked about because uh, SPL for a lot of times is just treated as a majority shareholder there. Yeah, um, I think that's something audiologists. It, it it is one of the I guess similarities in our fields. We do learn a lot about the differences between loudness and then sound level, and that I think that we could appreciate the, the just the importance of understanding that difference. Um, when you're so kind of moving on to to smart, because I find this potentially could be a really good tool for audiologists, those audiologists who are involved in hearing conservation. Now, there are not so many of them, but hopefully there will be more, um, is is just um, different ways of practicing audiology grows. But um, I'll just mention that I'm thinking of using SMART myself with an orchestra that I'm working with in order to to monitor their sound levels because in orchestra, it is incredibly dynamic. You can use personal dosimeters, but I haven't actually used the software yet. I've learned some about it from you, Michael. And can you just give us a little bit of background for, for audiologists to learn about what the tool specifically you work on with within SMART? Sure. Yeah. You know, and you kind of mentioned SMART's kind of like a multi-tool for audio measurement, right? So we can measure room acoustics, we can measure reverb, we can measure the response of a PA system, we can measure all sorts of stuff. Part of the tool set that's built into SMART is, is a sound level uh, measurement tool set. And, and that's something that really has grown. Uh, we're, we're about to release version nine uh, at the end of this month. And our, our version eight came out in uh, the first uh, 8.0 came out in 2016. And we've just kind of been adding bits to it since then. And, and in, in that couple of years, we've seen the demand for sound level measurement tools just explode. So if you look at what 8.0 did versus what 8.5 does now, we've added so much stuff. And a lot of that is people calling us up and saying, hey, it should should do this. And a lot of that was me going to concerts and talking to engineers and saying, look at this thing. What do you think? What should it do? What questions do you have? And we really try to build a a tool that's useful for these people. So this is something that's becoming part of the industry consciousness in a way that it wasn't in the past. And so we are... um, basically trying to create a Swiss army knife of sound level monitoring. So we can do the stuff that everybody's used to the fast and the slow and the A and the C, um, which for a long time was kind of all you had. If you had a little, you know what I call the party favor meters, you got your little radio shack uh, handheld thing, you know, mm. with, with the nine volt battery in it. And uh, you had to choose, do I want fast or slow? Do I want A or C? And there you go. Um, the problem is for the types of questions that we're typically trying to answer in, in the live event world. Uh, what was the level of the last set? What was the level of the song? What was it, you know, those are useless. They're, they're completely, you have one second of context on SPL slow. It has a one second integration time, right? So you, you can't watch three seconds of a movie and tell me what the plot is. We need more context. So so we've, we've our industry uses predominantly a metric uh, called LEQ, which I would assume a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but it's basically just an average over a longer period of time. Uh, and it's just like, how much, how much, you know, how much energy do we, do we see over this, over this window of time? And then you can start to say, well, what's, what's the level of this performance over 10 or 15 minutes? Um, so getting people comfortable with the idea of an LEQ and we can do as many LEQs as we want in smart. You're not, you know, a a lot of the tools that people were using for a long time, they would do one or two and it was like a one minute, 10 minute, and there you go. And so smart, you can do as many LEQs as you want and anything from one second to 24 hours. And you can do a weighted and C weighted and you can do unweighted and you can do octave banded. Right. So we're just, uh, we kind of have this idea of like the, the, you know, the, the infinite monkeys that are typing. Like we just say, here's a bunch of stuff that it can do. And people go out and they then use this in ways that we are like, oh, we didn't think anyone would, 
do that in that way. So we've really created a tool set that just allows people to build what they need out of it. So a bunch of LAQs is, is important. And I think that the most important thing for this conversation is something we added uh, in 8.4, uh, which is uh, dosimeter measurements. So we can do NIOSH and OSHA uh, dosimeters in real time. Um, and I think that, you know, not that no one was doing that before, as you said, you can buy these things that go on, but the, 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 the reason that's so significant in our world is because smart has already been at mixed position in live events for, you know, smart's been out for 25 years. Um, and, and so if you go to, if you go to 50 uh, concerts, 49 of them, probably you're going to see smart. So, so what we, what we were able to do is not go out and, you know, you can't go on shark tank and say, everyone should buy this new dissimilar thing that I made. Good luck. We're already there. People are already using this tool. So by saying, Hey, we added this stuff that doesn't cost anymore. Just update your software. It's a free update. Now you can do all this stuff. We were able to get this tool into the hands of people without having to get people to try to adopt a new platform and start from scratch. And so now all of a sudden, everybody who's out in the industry can do sound level measurement. Everybody who's out there using this tool can do dissimilar. And um, one of the things we did in 8.5 was we made the NIOSH and OSHA, they're enabled by default. You don't even have to turn them on. So if you pull up a sound level meter in smart, you are generating exposure data. And so kind of what I wanted is for it to be a little tugboat on the industry to just, you know, we're not, we're not the noise police. We're not going around cracking people on the, on the shins with a ruler and saying, turn it down. <laughs> but we are saying, Hey, let's be aware of this. The first step for me is just, let's look at the data. What are the numbers? You know, I, I spent a year just taking this thing to shows and logging shows. And just so we get some idea of, what typically type of exposure doses are people being exposed to when they go to a live event? We didn't even know. We didn't even know, you know, what typically what's the highest, you know, peak C. Why? We don't have that. Data. Right. What right. are you so, finding in terms of that? <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so now I've got, you know, every show that I've been to and every show that I've worked on for the last three years, I've got sound level data. And so now we know what, what type of peak C max values that we see. We know what type of exposure that we see. And that has been a big starting point in terms of how do we approach educating about this? Cause we didn't know those things, you know? Yeah. When, is that sorry, Laura, let's say, when are we going to add to your data collection pre and post hearing tests at concerts? When are we going to create a new safety scale for the music industry? Cause we're ready. Are you Ooh. ready? I, oh, <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, that's a great question. I think it's a complicated question. Our industry in some ways moves very quickly and in some ways it's crawling. Um, I am really convinced that step one is to have data. Step one is what we're doing now, which is saying, hey, you can measure this. We don't have to guess about how dangerous this is because you can mm -hmm. find out for yourself. Right. So uh, and awareness, which is another part of what we're doing with our classes. And like you said, I've co-authored some papers for the AES where we're, we're just trying to get information out there. There is no shortage of information on sound exposure, as, as you both know, but most of it is not packaged in a way that's useful or actionable to a live sound engineer who mm -hmm. didn't go to audiology school and doesn't read medical papers. You know, how do we get these people on board with this stuff and give them a functional knowledge of it um, so they can make decisions so we can we can gather the data, but the data doesn't mean anything unless the people gathering the data understand what the data means. And that's really where we are still. There are some conversations happening with AES and World Health Organization where we're looking at what would it take to do an industry-wide certification. They just, you know, actually, I think it was it was in March. Uh, Heather, that's when we met. the 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 World Health Organization standard for for safe listening venues came out, um, mm -hmm. and they cited some of the research that I worked on, which is pretty cool. But what's the next step? How do we now put uh, some guardrails on this? Um, and and there's a ton of conversation there about should there be rules, should there be laws, should there be regulations? I, I really feel that the most successful way to do this 
is to go with professional responsibility. Like regardless of most of the shows that I work on in my career, there's no law that says you can't expose people to this level. I, I, I live and I work in the US, right? If you go to Europe, that's not the case. But where, where I live, most of the time, there's nobody saying, hey, turn that down, you're hurting people, right? But I'm still involved with operating a system that has the ability to hurt people, just as you do with a car or when you're doing rigging or pyro or electrical or any of the other stuff that we do in a professional environment. It's in our best interest not to hurt somebody. And it's a little harder with audio because it doesn't, you don't see it in the same way as like a pyro failure or a truss. You know, you think about the horrific stuff like the Indiana State Fair collapse, right? Like there's just acute consequences of somebody who's being negligent. And you don't necessarily see that in audio. It might be years before somebody realizes that they've been doing damage, but the responsibility is still there. And so I, although I think it's a very productive conversation to start seeing things about certification and legislation and so on and so forth, I, I, I do believe that's coming. Um, I, I think the the most fruitful way is to go straight to the engineers who got their fingers on the faders of and are controlling what people are being supposed to and just help these people understand not only the information, but also their responsibility. And that's, you know, um, like I said, we're, we're a tugboat. Right? It's a big, it's a big, heavy thing. Um, and it's got a lot of momentum and we're not going to change anything overnight. But what we can do is is help people understand what they're dealing with. Um, and and I, I actually feel pretty positive that we've been able to affect some good change that way. Well, that's one reason we wanted you on this podcast, because you're I mean, there, there are not a lot of people in audio engineering who who kind of care about this topic. And audiologists, in theory, we care about it so much that this is what we're our profession is based off of is helping people preserve their hearing or treat hearing disorders when they have them. So we just wanted to also let audiologists know like there are people across the river <laughs> um, who, like yourself, Michael, who are really passionately working on trying to make change. And I think also your perspective on almost putting the responsibility in the professional's hands is an interesting one. We've heard of, oh, the responsibility should be the audience member wearing earplugs. Other people think it should be government regulation, but I think practically we all know how incredibly challenging that is. Um, But it is an interesting idea to put it some of the responsibility, at least in the hands of the professional. So I think if there's any way audiologists can help, we should be there in, in, in any way, shape or form. I mean, it goes kind of back to this idea of informed consent, right? Uh, you know, because a lot of people go, oh, the people chose to go to a concert. Like, yes, but, you know, if they thought there was a actual, real, non-negligible possibility that the rigging would fall and kill them, uh, they probably wouldn't make that same decision to go down there and stand under that stuff. So there's a real trust here that the people who do this are, are doing it correctly. You know, and we have conver- I had a couple of shows ago, conversation with a rigger who said, yeah, I, I, I can't hang that. We have to figure out a different way to do it because it's, I, I'm not going to allow it to be hung this way because that's not safe. And if he doesn't say that, no one else says it. He's the mm-hmm. only check on that. So we have to be very serious about that. You know, if, if, if we don't care, no one else is going to care. Yeah. So, so there's a real professional obligation there. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it is, I mean, stuff like the, the, the Apple watch is a big deal now, right? Because we're no longer the, the sole uh, shareholder of this. You've got, if you're an arena show, how many Apple watches are there in an arena now? You know, right. you got 10,000 people in there. There's probably 3000 Apple watches in there and they're going to go, Hey, this isn't safe. Now I'm not, I'm not really interested in the conversation about how accurate this, this thing is. You know, is it a class compliant measurement device? No. Should we use it to make enforcement decisions? No. But there's a consciousness there that is saying, hey, um, 
this isn't a good thing to do to yourself. And so sort of the cat's out of the bag in a way, in a good way. And so now there's a little more uh, visibility of the issue and people are starting to ask. I've seen way more internet forum posts and Reddit posts and people think, yeah. well, why, why, why am I, you know, why am I being exposed to this stuff to, you know? And so that, and that's compound that with the issue of um, you can't look at a meter and go, that's, that's, you know, it, management loves to come up and go turn it up. Sound loud. You're looking at a number. Like, are you listening? Hide the meter. Does it sound, does it sound like it has impact? Does it sound good? You know? It, and so we have to now, bridge that gap as well, which is, um, let's just, let's, let's not get caught up with, with, you know, making sure the number on the meter is high enough for your, whatever silly mental system you've created. Let's talk about how it sounds, you know, and, and <laughs> I can, I, I'm not, I'm not really a mix engineer, but I can still given, you know, given a, a certain limit, I can mix a show that has more impact and sounds louder than most other engineers, just because I've studied all of these things that play into that or, or consequently, my shows tend to measure much lower than, than other mix engineer shows. And again, it's not because I'm some hot shot. Yeah. And it's not a hot shot mix engineer thing. Um, you know, we, we did a festival, uh, we did an R and B festival in Atlanta. Um, and you know, it's an R and B festival. So it's like 102, 103 front of house for eight hours, which is like too much, you know, <laughs> it's like too much. And we're the headliner and, uh, I'm not going to come out and do that thing where I feel like we have to one up everybody else. And I had to be one louder. Right. Um, I ran our show at 97, you know, and, uh, the, the, the review that I saw said that our set had the most energy and audiologist for contacts 97 is, is a lower level than most concerts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. Believe it or not, con- cause audiologists might, we, we might not even know that, right. We might just assume that, but 97 is not high for a live concert. It, it's lower than average. It's not, you know, it's not middle of Barnes and Noble, but, but it's, it's lower than average. And the, the wonderful thing about the way that the exposure math works is even two or three DB lower is a significant improvement in terms of of doing oh, less yeah. damage to people. Right. So if you can shave off two DB, yeah. shave off two DB off your, off your mix and learn how to make that impactful. And the other thing is, boy, people loosen up and they're more comfortable and they're talking to each other and they seem to just enjoy it better when they're not being pummeled. So mm-hmm. I reject this whole, that's what the people want saying. Cause they don't, they showed up with earplugs in their pocket because totally they were worried about this, you know? So just yeah. let people relax a little bit. There's a, yeah. there's a theater in my hometown that I mix at and sometimes, and the, the box office guy said, when you're here mixing, it's the only time we don't get complaints that's too loud. So like people don't want to be steamrolled. Yeah. They don't yeah. like it, you know? <laughs> I think 97 is great. And for the very young audiologists listening, Barnes and Noble was a book and music store. <laughs> where it was very quiet in case they've never been to a bookstore. That's where I you bought Michael's Noble? book from. Not I, online, Barnes and Noble's online. <laughs> It still exists. And there's are still there any still like open? Yes, there's they one are. still open. There's, are there not around where I live? <laughs> there's one like uh, five minutes from where, where Laura is. Actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, it I wasn't physically. Just so I can go and reminisce. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and I try to not use Amazon when I don't have to. So, um, so last kind of question about numbers and smart um, because clinical audiologists, they're pressed for time. They get to see a patient. They have 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And for those who, who, um, they might be working with an audio engineer or musician, but a lot of audiologists will probably see concert goers and an audiologist we're they're going to want to know we like, we we're, we're going to want to know, well, what is that number? What do we tell mm-hmm. a patient? Okay. When it hits this number, it's unsafe. Now we all kind of know the answer. The answer is there is no one number, but this is not an, an answer, Michael, that I am asking you to give, give us a number, but it's almost like a discussion with the three of us. 
we're going to need some kind of quicker answer for a clinical Mm -hmm. audiologist in order to give their patient some information they can actually use. And I, I feel like, you know, NIOSH is interesting. OSHA is interesting, but could there be something better, you know, and and if we have the tools with smart, could we figure something out? Yeah. You know, this is something that I don't want to say I lose sleep over this, but it's definitely something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Right. Because when you say to somebody, Oh, I do sound level measurement for a living. They're all like, well, how loud is too loud? They want a number. Right. They and do that, you know, and you can't, it, cause I would like to say it's about how loud for how long, you know? So, so going to a con- if you look at the, the world health organization guidance, right. That that's for someone who's going to four shows a year. It's not for someone who mixes five shows a week. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to consider that, but but if you want a number and a starting point, again, I would go back to that standard, you know, a, a, a hundred dBA weighted um, over the typical length of a concert. So we're going to call it four hours. That's kind of a line in the sand where if you're above that, you probably don't want to be exposed to that. Yeah. Um, and, and and as I hate to even do you're that. You're calling a hundred the line in the sand? They are saying hours? that should that should be the 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 limit that should not be exceeded. Now, a lot of shows are under that. But a lot of shows are not. Um, and so I think it's I think it's a reasonable starting point where if you go higher than that, you're not doing that much in terms of protection. And if you go lower than that, you're not being super realistic about the current state of things. Um, mm. I, I remember being probably 17 or 18 years old and I went to a local audiologist and I told her what I did. And I said, look, you know, my shows aren't loud. I go, I, I mix it like 93. And she goes, well, that's still way too loud. That's not a realistic answer. No one's going to, you know what I mean? Like even, even a Nora Jones concert is like, you can't. So, so this is part of the issue is there's a disconnect between what y'all were taught and your, I mean, here's the thing. I have the the handbook of clinical audiology here, the, the cats one. Uh, sometimes I have trouble sleeping. Right. So I read that but there, <laughs> there's a thousand pages in that book and 20 of them are about sound exposure. Mm-hmm. That's 2%, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. so the stuff that is being taught in audiological circles versus the stuff that the pro audio industry is involved with. It's just such a huge gap there still. Preach. And, right. Yes. And that was yep. part of our problem. When we, when we, I remember we had a meeting with, with Jamie, our, our president at rational acoustics. Hey, Hey, we're going to introduce more sound uh, measurement tools. We're going to introduce exposure. And we were like, well, why do you use a weighted at concert levels? Cause isn't that for, you know, we had all these questions cause we didn't know. And where do you go to get that stuff? And so I was like, I'll take the bullet. I'll read this book. You know? <laughs> so, so I, I read all this audiological stuff and I realized how little of it is useful for people doing live music and how little research is done on live music. So much of it is industrial or commercial or speech. Orchestras. <laughs> right. Marching bands. Yeah. So this this thing where you can be in the front row at a concert and be exposed to, you know, 140 dB peak C for hours at an EDM festival, there's no data on that because that's a new thing. You know, that wasn't happening 30 years ago. That just didn't exist. So when you talk about, well, we have noise from, you know, steady state noise measurements on factory floors, that doesn't really help us with this person who's at a concert and is just getting, you know, their pant legs are flapping because there's so much bass. Right. Um, now, I'm not saying that's inherently bad. People like that. It's part of why people go to a concert. It's part of the experience we want to deliver when we when we do a live event. But we also don't want to hurt anybody. So we need to understand how to do that and, and to minimize the risk. And and that's been a big challenge that a lot of my colleagues at AES are working on is, is we don't even have a lot of data on this. And you can't exactly put people in front of subs and say, we're going to turn it up until it's dangerous and see what happens. Like you can't ethically, you can't research it that way. Which could be a really, no, we, I listened to another podcast recently with um, Barbara Weinstein, who's an, um, um, she contribute has contributed a lot to the audiology world. And 
has done a lot of research and she talks about how she tries to publish in non-audiology um, mm-hmm. journals. And it's just such a good idea. And that's, again, another reason, like hope, hopefully we can somehow collaborate, whether it's Heather, myself, or other audiologists who are interested with you and your team, and perhaps even get some data published in audiology mm-hmm. journals, uh, not just Audio Engineering mm-hmm. Society. I think that could just, like you said, raising awareness is really important. And we need to just kind of continue to get that data out there. Yeah. yeah and, and that's a big problem too. I mean, even even there's AES papers on this stuff. Most of the touring engineers that are out there don't read AES. Right. No, and that's something we talk about in our AES meetings is, is, okay, great. You got this data. Now what? And so we do stuff like put articles in Live Sound International and Pro Sound Web and, and the publications that, the, that some of, the, some of the, the touring people do read. How mm. do you get this information to houses of worship? I swear mm. to you, I, did a, I was involved in a consultation in a church and they said, yeah, our subwoofers are so loud that at Christmas, uh, some people in the front rows threw up, Right. <sighs> And so you go, hey, you're hurting people. But how the people that are in charge of those decisions at this church are not going on AES and looking for papers. Right. So how do we get that information to them? It has to be bite-sized. It has to, these yes. things, I mean, they're going on YouTube. They're going on, mm-hmm. you know, ProSound Web and looking at, at the articles in like, you know, Church Sound Magazine. And so, so you have to figure out a way to distill this. I call it like cooking spinach, right? Um, <laughs> we all know all of this stuff about this topic because we all study this for a living. <sighs> But I can't, there's got to be an elevator pitch. There's got to be a 30 second answer um, because I can't go to the pastor of a church and say, here's seven papers that I wrote. That's not helpful. That's not useful. He's not going to be impressed. Nobody cares, right? So how do you give him a bite-sized bit of information that's going to be productive? And that's a big challenge with this because some of these topics are very, very hard to to minimize, right? Yeah. And it's the same in audiology. You know, that pastor, that worship leader might go to a local audiologist and the audiologist does not know what to say. Mm-hmm. You know, we see this a lot on our audiology messaging boards. We get so little information on hearing conservation in our training. You mentioned it in the cat's book. And then we have people coming to see audiologists. And if they're not seeing one of a handful of us who deal with this day in and day out and have studied it, it, it they often don't get the right help. And mm-hmm. so that's, again, this interdisciplinary approach is so important to getting this information out there um, because audiologists could help lead the way if they knew how to. You know, and that's kind of what I said about, you know, I, I still think we're in the information and, uh, and kind of, I'm going to call it, I hate this term, the evangelism stage, right? Uh, and, and yes, we do need to look at better models for sound exposure that are, that are music specific and occupation specific. We do need to look at that. That's very important, but, you know, still, I know as an example, something like smart, which is, which is a clear industry standard for this. Um, we still, I still see posts all the time. And someone says, look, I'm looking for a way at my church to measure level. And I go, hey, there's this thing that I work on. And then I think it's like, per- and they're like, oh, wow, where has this been all my life? I'm like, well, it's been, a, it's been a thing. You just didn't know about it. So we still, even where you're saying, well, we have, we have whatever market share or it's, you know, we have become a, a standard tool. You still have all these people who have never heard of it and don't know that it exists. And it's the same thing about the information. Uh, a lot of people we're learning are just hungry for information about this. Mm-hmm. There was some cultural stuff where they hold, if it's too loud, you're too old, blah, 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 blah. But by and large, people do care about this and they want to know about it and they just don't know where to go. So mm-hmm. so I think before we get to better models and all that stuff, and I, a lot of that's coming, but I think the, the first step is still, hey, this is a thing. You should know about it. We have tools to help you understand it. Here's some context to help you understand it. We are still in the 
stage of just getting people to understand what we're talking about. Um, and that's where the rest of this is going to come from. And probably at the end of the day, at least right now, like if you see a patient today who asks you, oh, I'm going to a concert and, you know, should I bring earplugs? The answer just has to be yes at this point. It just has yeah, to be. and that's and yeah, and and sometimes people misinterpret. I'm not I'm not shaming people who bring earplugs to concerts. Oh, right, of you course. should you yeah. should protect yourself. And and you know if you know you're going to a metal show, it's probably responsible to put earplugs in your pocket before you go. Uh, I actually you know I keep a big bag of foamies at front of house, and I I look for sometimes you'll see a little kid just you know and I'll I'll bring him a pair, but you know I'll I'll do some if a if a parent comes up and says hey do you have earplugs I'll be like yeah man but come on like you know, you knew you were going to a metal concert, like, you know, so, so yeah, take some personal responsibility, but I I'm looking forward to a place in the future of the industry where we don't feel like we need to protect ourselves from that because right. the, the professionals that are responsible for it are going to be doing it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Can we keep going you guys? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Heather, do you want to talk, uh, talk a little about, about national hearing conservation? Association? I would love to, because that's how Michael came into my life. Yes. And it's been so great ever since. So Aww. NHCA, I think is, NHCA in my mind is like the hidden jewel of audiology. Um, and even though it's, it's not fully an audiology association, it's super interdisciplinary. We have all kinds of members, all kinds of presentations, but it's centered around hearing conservation. Um, right now I'm on the leadership advisory team for the NHCA and I used to be on the executive council. Oh, and Heather, uh, you won an award this year too from the national, uh, from the NHCA, didn't you? <laughs> Did I? Oh, yes. outstanding lecture. Yes. Thank you. Based on uh, music industry. It's always music industry stuff with me. Um, so I met Michael there because he won the Safe and Sound Award. Well, he he and his colleagues at Rational Acoustics. And um, Michael, I'm what you know, what did that mean to you guys? I and here, let me preface it by saying I think a lot of audiologists, if they're listening, they think of NHCA as being maybe antiquated and military focused or OSHA focused. And that's kind of not what we are at all. That's a sector of it, but it's so much more innovative and creative than that. And, and one of the ways we show that is through the Safe and Sound Award. And um, if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners what, what that meant for you guys in terms I, of being know, recognized was, in that way. It was really funny because like, we're not, you know, that stuff's not on our radar. We're not following audiological stuff or the conferences or, you know, I, 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 I've spent a reasonable amount of time reading papers, but that's, that's about it. We, we live in, in, in live events world. That's where my head is all the time. You know, I'm, I'm at shows and I'm talking to engineers and dealing with PA systems. So we're working on these tools and, and that's kind of, you know, we're in our own little, and then we get this email about and we're like, what? What, is it? what are you talking about? Like, what is it? We just didn't. We had no context for what this thing is, or that anyone was paying attention to. That anyone outside of our own tiny little, you know, we're our tiny little industry, and we're a tiny little corner of that tiny little industry. It's it's a niche within a niche, you know. So like, we're like, what? What? What is? What are you talking about? What is all this? And um, I've it's been so. The thing that was kind of funny is that we started studying sound exposure because we're going to build these tools. We have all these questions like about NIOSH. And so, you know, cause I'm, you know, I'll call NIOSH because a lot of people like wouldn't even think the deal, but I go like a phone number on the website and we call them. Right. And they didn't know, they weren't expecting to hear from me. They didn't know what, what was, so I got passed around a bunch, but I got, I got answers. I, I, I talked to, uh, I want to say David Byrne was the guy's name. If I remember correctly, he was an audiologist over at NIOSH. And, and uh, so now I've got a lovely little email chain with the NIOSH people. Whenever we have a question about this, and this is a big thing for us is we're not audiologists. We're not doctors. We're sound engineers. We develop software. So if we're going to stand up in front of rooms of people and talk about this, 
I have a very uh, big ethical obligation to make sure that the stuff we're saying is is based in science and and you know wouldn't be contradicted. So I remember getting this email that a bunch of the NIOSH people had sat through one of my trainings that I was doing on this, I think for NAM or something like that, or Event Safety Alliance or something. And that's a freaking nightmare for somebody who learned what they learned from the internet. You know what I mean? To have a bunch of degreed audiologists come and sit through your class on science project. I was so nervous. I was like, oh no, I'm about to get some nasty emails. And they were like, we think this is great. And I was like, really? You think it's great? And so we were just so um, overwhelmed by kind of you know, we kind of take what we do for granted, you know, this is just, this is what we do. And so the fact that somebody in the autological community was, was paying attention to it and thought it was cool and thought it was helpful were, was um, very humbling and we were very, very honored. Um, so yeah. that's been, that's been pretty cool. And it's also been really nice for us because again, who are we, right? We're not, you know, to, to stand up to our industry and say, Hey, you should listen to what we're saying about this. Not because we want to sell you software, but because this is important. Um, yeah. I don't care if you use our tools or somebody else's tools. You know, we want to make a tool that that is helpful and useful. And we we think that when you look at what you can use, that you're going to go, oh, yeah, this tool is cool. And, and it makes sense for me. We hope that's what you do. But at the end of the day, my bigger concern is that you understand these topics and we're all moving the industry towards a place where we're not doing damage to people. And so um, it it became very cool for us to have sort of a more official backing of people that did go to school for this and, and our trusted authorities um, from a medical perspective to say, yes, you guys are going in the right direction with this and you're, you're, you're doing stuff that's positive. And that was like a really cool um, feeling. And so we got the little, you know, we got a little plaque in the mail yeah. and, and our CEO was like, do you want me to send it to your house? Cause I work mostly remotely. And I was like, no, I don't care about the plaque. Like none of this for the plaque, you know, isn't this for like the little pat on the shoulder that was like, Hey, you, this is, you're, you're going in the right direction was kind of the really cool thing for me. Yeah. Um, I, it was really special for those of us there who, who work in the music industry to see you guys there. And, you know, I had heard of rational acoustics, but I really didn't know too much about it. And, um, I think it was a proud moment for all of us, especially because you say you are a niche within a niche and, I want to ask you for the AES papers. So you have co-authored three papers in the past year, um, sort of developing the foundations. Is yeah, it more like, than three? It's like, I think it's like six by this point. <laughs> Is yeah, it really that much. many? Yeah, in the past year? Oh, okay. That okay. amazes okay. me. Yeah. I hate writing. So kudos to you. Um, but how, you know, how did the group come together and what is the experience like working working with other authors, coming to a consensus, mm-hmm. creating future goals. I mean, who, who are, who are these people? How did you find each other? Was it just through AES or are you pulling others in or how is that process going? Yeah. So, so uh, audio engineering society has a lot of, of sections. Uh, and so uh, there's the uh, acoustics and sound reinforcement is kind of the, the, the part that I'm, that I'm involved with. Um, and so within that, there's a working group. Um, and our, our working group, there's, there's a couple of us, uh, Dr. Adam Hill is, is the chair and he kind of oversees it, but, um, there's, there's, there's about five or six of us from, uh, various parts of the world that are involved with sound level measurement in particular. And that's part of this is that there just aren't that many people in the audio industry talking about this. Mm-hmm. So if you start talking about it and you start sharing data, you're going to get an email that says, Hey, come talk about this with us because, because it's not 
it, there's only it's not like how you know people that like to do uh, like model trains like there's only like six of us right so so um there was the, a bunch of my colleagues did a survey a couple of years ago just to kind of get an industry read on hey what do people think about sound exposure do you think there should be regulations do you know what leq means do you know what niosh is uh what tools are you exposed to seeing in the field and so i sent an email i was like i i'm really interested in this topic and I would like to get involved and hey, yes, kind of, you know, you show up and you jump in. Um, so we, we've done, I want to say five or six papers over the last 18 months or so about various aspects of this. We did a big one. It was like 200 pages about, it's called Understanding and Managing Sound Exposure and Noise Pollution in Outdoor Events. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most definitive things that's been released on this topic for our industry because it's not piecemeal. We kind of like, there's like 300 sources cited, right? So it's kind of all like dumped into one stew of of stuff. And then we've done a bunch of shorter ones that are particularly about monitoring and regulations and practices mm -hmm. and how do we get it better. And then now we're doing one about certification and stuff like that. So yeah, there's, there's, there's five or six of us at the AES uh, that, that are just talking about everything that has to do with sound level monitoring. And one of the things we're talking about now is how do we measure the directivity of a whole PA system? You know, how much louder is it in the front and the back and on the sides? And that plays into our conversations about noise pollution and stuff like that. Um, no one's tried to do that before. Yeah. You know, so just just new questions that we have that this gee, it would be really helpful if we could like measure the dynamic range of a live event the way we can measure it in a recording. Well, that's really complicated live because you have audience noise, you have gaps between songs. And so even something as simple as dynamic range, we had to do a paper on that and say, here's how here's a method we came up with to measure dynamic range, because now you're going to feed this into algorithms. That get, you know what I mean? So it's just 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 giving yourself a foundation to make useful data sets requires a lot of thought. And I'll be honest. I can't follow a lot of the math. You know, Adam Hill is a, is a genius and a lot of the other guys on, on, on this, this group are absolute geniuses. Um, my role in a lot of this is, is to act as almost an editor and just help make sure that people who aren't geniuses with math can follow it. And yeah. are we communicating clearly? And I, it, did we define this term before we used it? And, uh, you know, I, I will make no bones about the fact that I don't follow I understand conceptually everything we're talking about, but I can't spit out these these models and these in these math formulas like these guys can. But um, a lot of my role is to say, hey, humans who don't have math degrees are going to read this. Yeah. Are we communicating this clearly? You know, and yeah. I think we should put this paragraph here and I think we should use this term instead of this term because it's going to be less confusing for people. And so in a way, I'm a student, even though I'm, my name is on the paper, I'm still a student of it and I'm still trying to trying to learn and follow along like everybody else. Um, and so I've kind of got a unique perspective there. Um, and it's a little bit like the Slumdog Millionaire thing. Um, you know, my whole career has been, has been like that, like, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know the answer to that question you just asked until I co-authored a paper on it. And that's the only reason I can, I can answer this question for you, but I, but I didn't know it until I read the paper draft. Right. So I'm, I'm constantly just following along and, and I might poke my fingers in here and there, but, but it's really, we're all, we're all learning about this. I was going to say you all the I mean? best professionals I know are lifelong students of each other, you know? I, I know Laura because I knew her when she was in school and I'm learning from her now as my colleague. And, you know, that's really how the professional world works best is if we're all in this kind of learning process together. I, we're talking a lot about sound levels in venues, which is great. One area that audiologists often work in is in your monitoring. Mm -hmm. And there is a misconception in audiology foremost audiologists that they are protective devices just inherently because that's how they've been sold 
to audiologists and, and musicians. Um, and there are tools like the Audix TM2 Ear Simulator and Mimi. And of course, they've come out recently. There's also the DB Check Pro, which is being revamped to read drive voltage off of in-ears from any major manufacturer. So we can look at sound levels um, and we can at least get, a, get an idea of SPL, right. you know, as right. best we can. Um, what are some levels you have seen? Have you done much work in this area? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I haven't, I'm not a monitor engineer. I, I don't do a lot of work with in-ear monitors in particular, but you know, we obviously, when you're going to use the TM2 or you're going to use the SLS audio Mimi and you're going to measure in-ears, um, most people are using smart for that. And so, so we are involved in helping them use that tool. And, and we brought, we brought a Mimi up to, to Dr. Laura's office and we showed her how it worked. And, and so, you know, I, I don't measure a lot, but I talk to monitor engineers about it all the time. And yeah, I mean, some of these levels are just insanity, you know, like just 106, 107, 112 a weighted, just people are just, you know, you're, you're, as you know, often dealing with a musician who's been doing this for so long, they've already got hearing loss. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't that the IM caused it, but it's certainly not helping. Um, so that is, that is something that, you know, I think again, the tools didn't really exist for that a decade ago. So you see stuff like the TM2 and the, and the Mimi popping up. And now it's something that you can throw in your backpack if you're a monitor engineer and you can actually get data on this in the field because previously IM measurements where you had to use, you know, the, the gross stuff or the audio position stuff is happening in a lab or is happening at the manufacturer with very expensive stuff that was really difficult to do in the field accurately. Um, yeah. So a lot of people are like, well, the Mimi is like, you know, nine, you know, 900 bucks or whatever. And they think it's a lot of money, but I'm like, yeah, but the context of this is it was previously a $50,000 rig that is now a $1,000 rig, right. And in a laptop. So much like with system measurement and smart in general, it's come to a point where it is actually practical to do in the field by a person who's not in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely moving in the right direction. I think it's back to the same thing. We're back to the data gathering still. Um, yeah. And we're back to basic stuff like, Hey, I've got uh, a pair of in-ear monitors and left and right don't match. And I can prove that they don't match because I can measure it. We mm -hmm. couldn't always do that. Um, and so maybe I, I, then somehow we can sneak in. Oh, and by the way, I also noticed you're monitoring at a 106 dBA. Mm -hmm. You'd like me to explain why this is yeah. bad. <laughs> well, I think, you know, recently we had a thing where the artist uh, was like, I can't, I can't hear it. And, and uh, the monitor tech measured them and found out that left and right were out of polarity. So that's mm. why, and, and we, they were using that uh, immersive uh, kind of 3D imaging technology, the Clang thing. No, so Clang, like, yeah. Right? So when you do a polarity version on Clang, you're messing with, of course, you, you're going to feel like you you can't really focus on what's happening because you're affecting all the, 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 the you know, binaural steering and everything. So I think number one is now we're like, hey, did you check these IEMs before you handed them to the artist? Are you measuring them to make sure they're the same every day that the ports aren't blocked, all that stuff? We're, we're still at a early stages of just building measurement into the routines for this stuff. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think, uh, you know, another part of it is, you know, are we doing fit checks? I think, I think, I think, and again, I'm not a monitor engineer, but the lack of fit checks, I think a lot of people are just cranking these Thanks, pardon my French, because there's no isolation there. Um, oh, and, yeah. and Thank you. I can talk a lot about that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, this is the thing, though. You so so we're Laura and I are very much on the side, the other side of you, where we're in the data collection phase for a lot of things. And Michael, I think you know my recent research on in your monitors with my colleague Alex Mybus. We're going to be publishing it soon, but finding that okay, so you get a monitor engineer, right? And they might be able to measure output levels, but they say, well, these are these are isolating. So, you know, their signal to noise ratio is better. They'll be able to turn it down. 
And, and we say, well, why, why do you think that? And they say, well, the manufacturer told me it's 26 dB isolation across the board. Okay. Well, that's never been studied, you know? And so one of the things Alex and I were doing recently was looking at these isolation levels and finding zero dB isolation in the low frequencies, two dB isolation, and output levels of over 143 dB SPL. And so, you know, audiologists, I think when they, when someone comes in and says, well, I want to be fit within your monitors, or they get called out to the venue, they have no clue. They have no clue what they're doing to potentially to the artist's ears or to the monitor engineer's ears. Um, and it's, it's really the fault of our community for not studying it, to be perfectly frank. Um, there are some of us who say, well, we just, we just know this because we work in the field. Well, that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help other people rise to the occasion and fit, mm -hmm. fit people appropriately. It also does not help the monitor engineering community. Um, and I'm curious if you think, you know, if the monitor engineer has a role in encouraging the musician to listen at a lower level or whose responsibility is it? Is it the oh, musician? Boy. Is it the audiologist? I, yeah, I, I think the monitor engineer, I would say I want that person to be educated and understand these issues. You have to be very, 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 very careful of what you say to a rock star about that yeah. because you will be on a plane in 30 seconds. Right. But yeah. mm -hmm. um, for those who are artists who are willing to have that conversation, I want the monitor engineer to be able to be, you know, competent in those topics. And, and I, I do, I do, you know, I mix a little local band here and they're in their fifties and their sixties. And so they've all got some hearing loss and they actually, I've seen some of their audiograms. And so I'll, I'll, so cool. I'll talk to them when they're facing the other way. If you can hear me, you don't have a good fit. You know what I mean? Like it, I'll just go, I'll just at conversational levels. If you can hear me talking to you with your in-ears in, then that's not, it's not fitting. Um, I, I think one of the things that I want to monitor to be able to do is recognize the signs of a bad fit. I want them to recognize when someone's really pitchy all of a sudden, where they keep asking you for more, 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 more. Um, that's probably a sign that, that they're not sealing well. Um, so a lot of monitor engineering, we've talked about this on our show all the time, is like uh, one of my co-hosts, Kylie, calls it a Miss Cleo, right? You've got to kind of figure out what's going on in their head um, and recognize their, even their body language of when they're not comfortable and when the artist can't hear something like that. Um, and so it is really difficult because you can't be in their head. You can't hear what they're hearing. Even if you're wearing the same IEMs with them, you're still not on a stage in front of a rock band. You still don't have the same fit that they have. You don't have the same hearing loss that they have. So it's really hard to put yourself in their shoes. But what we can do is recognize the signs of somebody not being comfortable and when they're not getting a good fit. Um, I, you know, had a good relationship with my act that I said, go get your hearing tested and bring the audiogram back and let's let's look at it. And that's I realized so rare. it's very rare. And that's it's so rare because be, you probably won't be able to do that, you know, um, but no, but I mean, for, for you to suggest that, you know, we, we tell audiologists, us music audiologists, we say, well, don't, don't tell the audio engineer how to do their job mm -hmm. because that's their job. It's not our job. Our job is, is, no, but you can hearing, equip that person to, to be. So when my drummer goes and gets an audiogram and he's 45 DB down at 8K, now I go, I understand why you're hitting your cymbals so hard now. And telling you not to hit him as hard is not going to be the answer here because you can't hear it otherwise. Yeah. Um, so maybe I need to, I need to put a, you know, 10 DB boost at 4k in your, in your monitors. And all of a sudden you feel like you can hear it. Um, so I, I want more information to be able to make a better decision. I think that's, that's a lot of it. Um, and, and then, and Laura and I talked about this, just destigmatizing it. I, I've now done two articles about this. I just did one. Last last month, I think, for live sound and sound personal web, and I went to go see Laura at her office, and I put my audiogram in the article. You can go to personal web and see what my what my thresholds are. Yeah, you know, so just just to get people used to this idea 
it's not a taboo anymore. Like, yeah, like this is something you should be thinking about. Ignoring the fact that you might have hearing loss doesn't make your hearing loss go away. Um, you know, you don't have to tell anybody your data. You don't have to share it, but you should know what it is and you should be equipped and you should have a conversation about what you can do to preserve what you have and take good yeah. care of yourself. And and so many live sound engineers are f- afraid of that. Um, yeah. And I think that's an older, it's an older generation thing for the most part. And we are seeing. I'm going to ask that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of in a cool spot with what we're doing with with signal noise, because we have such a vibrant community and a lot of them are early career people. And so we are actually able to kind of set the tone a little bit for the next generation of sound engineers and what we want them to be thinking about. And, you know, so Dr. Frank shows up, he's in our discord server. And um, anytime there's a hearing question, he pops in and, and we are so freaking thrilled to have, you know, (laughs) to have have a real life audiologist there. We're so thrilled about it, but um, there's just a, there's a, um, there's a real willingness for people that want to talk about this. They want to get the information. So we're not running from it and I'm doing what I can, you know, like I'll publish my thresholds. I don't care, but but a lot of it is, you know, Heather, when we we scheduled you to come on the show, man, we were just giddy with excitement. <laughs> we were like, hey, uh, Dr. Heather's coming on the show. We were so excited. And all the listeners are so excited. And so in general, our community and I think the, the live sound community in general, we do want to know about this. We do want training. We do want information. Um, I can't guarantee that the artist is going to want to talk to me about it. But what we can do is realize that this is an integral part of our job. And we want to educate ourselves about it. And so there is there is a real willingness to understand this stuff, I do think. And I, I think that's a good it's a good first step. I think it's changing on the artist side too. I was contacted by a management group. Oh gosh, I don't know, a few months, few months ago. Gosh, maybe more like eight months ago. Work with they work with a lot of big bands who people would recognize. And um the management contacted me to see if I would talk to people about hearing health. Mm-hmm. And so I've had some telehealth appointments with monitor engineers and their artists. <laughs> to learn about in-ear monitor safety, you know, how to have the ear impressions properly done, that kind of thing. And, and I recently worked with a monitor engineer who was just the coolest. I went on site, um, did hearing tests on like 10 different people, talked to them. And he was explaining to me and they were how he checks in with everyone every night and asks them, how are your ears feeling? Has your ringing changed? Are they tired at all? Um, and he does these regular ear checks even though, I mean, he's not an audiologist, he's not checking their hearing, but he's letting them know how important it is. Um, and I, that was, I've, I had never heard of that before, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, and now he's top of my list <laughs> for monitor engineers. And I said to him, how did you, how did you think to start doing this? Cause he's, he's actually older and he's been doing it for a while. And he said um, that he had looked online, you know, tried to teach himself about sound levels and what would hurt ears. And he doesn't know what level the in-ears are, but he thought at the minimum, he can ask people how their hearing is. Mm-hmm. And if there's a problem, he can call an audiologist. And I'm like, that is just the perfect place to yeah, start. It's awareness I thought that was lovely. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. You know, we're not rational acoustics is like I said, we're not the SPL police, right? We're not, we don't, we're not in the business of going in and telling people to turn their, turn their systems down. That's not what we do. Um, we're in the business of, bringing information to the table, you know, um, and, and explaining to people how to make good decisions. And, and, you know, that, that works. It really does. It really does work when you go, Hey, if you're buying, if you're buying an audio analyzer, right. You clearly you're in, you're interested in getting data. That's what it does. It gives you data. So by the fact that you went out and you bought this thing and you got your measurement microphone and you're showing up to a show and saying, I want to get some data. So of course you, 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 you care about that and you're interested in that. So we just need to help people to understand it. And that's, I think that's sort of the next step for us is NIOSH doses is, is very important, 
but it's not, it's, you can't like mix to it in real time, right? So it's not a good real-time indicator for a front of house engineer if they should be turning up or turning down or whatever. Um, we've done some cool stuff with like cascaded LEQs of different lengths. So you can see your dynamic range and how long you've been at a certain level and color coding the meters and all that stuff. So, you know, I think there's more to do there and we can acquire the data now. How do we frame it in a way that that is actionable? Um, and then how do you get people used to these tools? So we do, um, there's a big festival uh, called Outside Lands. It's out in uh, in California. And so the last couple of years, Rational Acoustics has done the level monitoring for this. And that is primarily a nuisance noise thing. It's about making sure that people around the festival in the neighborhood aren't disturbed or minimizing the disturbance. But what we've done is since we're there anyway, and we're there putting levels up on screens at front of house anyway, is set it up in a way that we teach in our workshop about mixing for impact lower levels over time. We set that whole thing up, even though that's not why we're there, just to get people used to seeing it. And we talk to the front of house engineers that come out with the different bands and we say, Here's, this is why it's laid out this way. And, you know, and we do have people go, wow, this is really cool. Like, how do I get one of these? Like, this is, I, I need this, you know, this is great. And, and it's really cool to see the experienced engineers learn how to you call it bob and weave. You know, you have, you can have a loud moment. You can go there. You just don't want to camp out there. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just exposure, no pun intended. We just want people to get used to seeing these things. Um, and I think the other thing is we have had some pretty big name engineers sit in on our workshop in the past for no other reason than for them, the students to say, oh, I've always looked up to engineer so-and-so. And he says that he uses this stuff too. And so it must be cool to do it. Like it's, I'm not a really compelling case to go, you should turn down because who, who am I, right? But I don't, I don't really mix. But if you if there's a mix engineer that, that you've grown up idolizing um, and you look up to and they're saying, yes, this is an important tool for me and I'm very, I'm very conscious about this and here are some tricks that I use to, to achieve impact at lower levels. And yes, we agree with what you're saying, Michael. Like for, for the students to hear that has been really helpful also because it's kind of like, hey, this is what the cool people are doing, right? So, so part of it is there's going to be a point when it flips, you know, 20 years ago, you were the odd man out if you had an audio analyzer because mm -hmm. no one was doing it. And now it's really, really rare to go to a show. And if you see someone that doesn't have one, now they're the odd man out. So we're trying to make it the same thing with sound level monitoring. And it's happening where we want to get to a point where if you are going, I don't care about my levels and I'm not watching them, that's going to put you in the minority. So there's going to be a point when it flips and this stuff is becoming more common. And I would say most shows I go to now, there's meters. Um, so it had, it's headed in the right direction, but a lot of it is just getting people used to seeing this stuff, you know? Yeah. And one takeaway for audiologists might be if you do have that sound engineer patient who comes in, which again, I know it's rare, but it happens, could just simply be about awareness Hey, did you know, do you use smart? Did you know there's an SPL section that can help you with um, monitoring the sound levels? And there are, there's, there are courses that can teach you how to use it. Like even just saying that could be one piece of information that perhaps that sound engineer didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's been, I think the, just real quick, the, the, um, I talk about the Muppet movie in my workshop, right. And, and there's Kermit and Fozzie. And I love the Muppet it, says, it says there's gonna be a fork in the road, and there's a huge fork in the road when they get there. Right? And so the fork in the road for this is that your ears can't tell you about SPL, right? So your your loudness perception does not tell you whether or not it's safe. So so getting people used to this idea of use your ears for loudness and use a meter for SPL, they're not the same thing. It's totally possible, like I'm totally comfortable right now, and for it to be dangerous. And it's totally possible for you to be like, I'm super uncomfortable, yes. it feels too loud, but if we're not to be dangerous, we have to start there. Everything else we're going to talk about, about how to use these tool sets, you have to be sold on the idea that 
the meter is what determines, you know, what's the levels of safe or not. Your ears, your ears aren't really well equipped for that for all the reasons that we talk about perception. So, so there's been a massive, if you get an audio textbook and you pull it off the shelf and I've got a bunch here, um, if that book is older than 10 years or so, read what it says about SPL. It's crazy and accurate. We've just been, you know, talking about Flusher Munson since 1931. And it's just yeah. like, come on. Like, the, so we, part of this has been breaking these things that have just been repropagated over and over and over again and are not true or were never true. Or um, like we talk about the research, but part of it is to get people to stop spreading stuff that's not true. Um, yeah, and that's yeah, been a that's big definitely. battle for us is just, Hey, stop saying that. Like you, I'll give you one example because I see it all the time. It's even in the World Health Organization standard. Sea weighting is representative of the, the you know, tonality of human hearing at concert levels. No, it's not. Look <laughs> at the 100 Fonz curve and put it on a chart with sea weighting. They are not the same. They're not even close to being uh, the same. We need yeah. to stop saying that, right? So, so things like that are in every book. And so, of course, you read the book. And now this is the thing that you know because you read it in a book. And people who write books must know what they're talking about, right? But it's Says very, the man who very just hard. The book. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, I found two typos so far, uh, but, but yeah, that, that's, that's a real part of it is, is breaking these things that we've all accepted as true for so long. We have to get past that before we can talk about what's actually true. It's an uphill battle in audiology too, man, oh, especially yeah. with the in-ear monitor stuff. I mean, it's just, we see misinformation after misinformation and we're like, when will this ever change? And right. all and we can hope stuff, is that right? one day it will. Like uh, the, the one that's been around for a long time too, uh, the bass, bass can't hurt you. Low frequencies can't hurt you. Yes, they can, but we still have a lot of data on that yet because it's a new, you know, it's a newer thing. So, so as we learn more about this, we have to be very aware that a lot of the stuff that we're going to encounter is, is either incorrect or outdated and, and um, just, not rolling that forward again and again is, is, is that's a tough cycle to break, but it's important here. Yeah. Um, I know we've been talking for a long time, but I just have a couple quick questions and they're kind I, of fun. Um, and we'll close it. out. I'm here. Let's do it. Okay. Your articles have been described as geeky. I think they're by who <laughs> by, by the internet, the oh. internet. Oh dear. Oh, okay. by Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see geeky all the time when I'm, I, I was doing some, you know, preparation for this podcast, but some of your art, it's not just geeky. Geeky is only one component. I'm going to read off some titles of articles you've written. And then if you can tell me an article, maybe like a favorite article or some article you particularly liked, no cable left behind a process for avoiding system problems from the outset, flying wrenches, being uncomfortable with getting too comfortable. Don't phase me, bro. Do double patch channels and oxfed subwoofers cause phase issues? And then the magnitude fallacy. So anyway, I just want people to know there's some pretty cool articles out there written by Michael Lawrence that you can read. Any favorites, Michael? Man, our so our editor at Personal Web, Keith Clark, um, he's responsible for a lot of uh, so the the subtitle of these articles is what we call the deck in the business, it's called the deck, and he he writes a lot of those. I was doing this thing for a, a, a long time where everything was. Um, like a like a a song or movie title parody that I was doing, but um don't don't phase me, bro. It was right after that guy uh, it was going through the TSA and was saying don't don't tase me, bro. The airport security, right? And so I wrote it right after that, and I am absolutely shocked that he let me keep that in the article. But I was so proud of it. But my favorite one of all time, I was writing an article about um how when you clip uh when you clip a, a waveform, you change its, its frequency content, 
And um, so the, in the article, I was doing a demonstration of you take, if you take a, a sine wave and you clip it hard enough, you end up eventually with a square wave. Yes. Um, and so the, the name of the article was clip to be square. And I was so <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> and nobody that thought is, it was funny except for me, right. but I'm like, you know what? I'm doing it. <laughs> it'd be good for, yeah. I used to have digital auditory audio processing students. That'd be a good mnemonic for them to kind of remember yeah. what happens yeah. if you clip a sine wave. That's awesome. Uh, we have to ask about more favorites too. We've mentioned signal to noise several times. And just to reiterate, it's a, it's a podcast that you're a co-host of, and it's much more than that. It's a community. Um, like I'm part of the Facebook group and I just love, I just love the conversations that happen in there. And I feel weird asking you this, but who was one of your favorite guests? Oh, oh boy. Uh, you know what? It's kind of crazy because we've done so many of them. Um, we've done like 170, something like that. Um, I, I really like the stuff like what you were talking about because it's different. It's not, we've talked to mix engineer after mix engineer. We've had some super iconic, you know, like Rob Scoble who makes like Prince and Tom, you know, you have these just huge heavy hitters that if you're in the live audio community, you've grown up seeing these people and looking up to these people. And it's really been cool to talk to all those, but I really like the stuff that, that we don't get to do. I like talking to audiologists. I like talking to the lady who does sound for the NASA broadcast. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. stuff that you're like, wow, I'd never thought about that. And so we do get these things that are kind of out of the box a little bit or just a different perspective. And, and those have been, those have been my favorites for sure. Uh, that's, I that's think a that answer. I no, it's, it's actually a really good answer. You had a guest on recently. I was just trying to see if I could find the podcast on my phone. Hannah, I think she was, you were a mentor of hers or yeah, I thought that actually, was a really good one. You want to talk about a success story. She walked up to me in an AES show in 2019 as a student, an audio student. And she said, I want to work for Rational Acoustics. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, and we're a tiny company. There's like 11 of us, right? We're just not, we're not that big. Um, and so that's, a, you know, that's kind of like going to your, your dad and when you're in high school and you're like, I want to be in the NBA and you got to go like, you know, what percentage of people actually, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just the odds of you getting a job at a company that only employs 11 people are not big. Um, but she did and she worked really hard and she works for Ashley Acoustics now. You know what I, I mean? I so loved hearing like, her story. Yeah. She's, and, oh, I got to listen cool. to that one. For, you should for audiologists listening to this podcast. I highly recommend, I listen to all the signal to noise podcasts now. It's become one of my favorite shows also because you guys are really fun to listen to, but there's so much we can learn from listening to the conversations you guys have on your show. So I would encourage any audiologist listening to listen to these conversations with audio engineers and, and learn, listen and learn a little bit. So thank you for the work you guys are doing. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a treat for us too. You know, it's not uh, the, the thing with it is we, we are, we had not set out to like teach people anything. It's not like, listen to us. Talk. We're, we are students of this and we are kind of along for the ride too with our guests. And like, let's just hear about your experiences and your perspective. And so I think we've learned so much by doing it, you know, and it's, it's cool that other people choose to listen in, but that was never about it for me. It was just about like, I want to, I want to hear what everyone's got to say, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, I've been, I've been very, uh, kind of like a kid in a candy shop with it. Well, to close out, Michael, because this is, again, an audience of audiologists, do, do you have anything you'd like to close out with just because you have so many audiology ears listening to you right now? Ooh, um, you know what? I, I, I would say that I would like to see kind of more bridges being built, you know, like if you're yeah. at if you're at a show, come by front of house and, and say hi. Uh, those types of things. If you have friends that are in live audio, like call them up and ask about this stuff. And, and from the beginning of setting this topic, you know, the majority issue hasn't been that we, that the information didn't exist. It's just been that 
the, the wires weren't all connected, you know, and, and, and people knew stuff, but they weren't talking to the other people who wanted to know the stuff. So I, I, I just want to, I want to see more uh, cross pollination, I guess, you know, I love that. That's so, that's such a great thought to end on. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's very nice. And also Laura, thank you for the, uh, the grilled cheese place recommendation. Cause. Oh was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I saw somewhere too. You have some like little line. It might be your website or something that says you like tacos, but maybe like the grilled cheese will start to. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it'd take a lot to unsurf the tacos, you know, it, it's kind of one of those, like, it's really hard to have credibility on the internet. Like, you know, you're going to get, you're on a forum with like, you're not going to convince anybody that, you know, anything and it you probably shouldn't. It's fine. So I started like bypassing the whole thing. How do I identify myself? Cause everyone's like, Oh, I'm a pro, whatever. It's like, no, I'm, I, I put taco enthusiast. You know, it's on my LinkedIn. <laughs> right, like, I've I, don't, seen somewhere. I don't care if you think I know what I'm talking about. It doesn't make a difference to me. You know, I'm not going to try to convince you of anything. I like yeah. tacos, you know? <laughs> well, and for anybody who is in central New York state, there is a grilled cheese shop called the compound in Utica, New York. And it is pretty it's out great. of this world. It is awesome. Yes. That's really good. Nice. Thanks for being with us today, Michael. This was oh, thank fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much.